Thank you for joining us here at the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. In case we haven't met, I'm Jason Hitchings, and I'm the men's and sports director here at Rolling Hills. Today, we are continuing our series, Masterclass. Jesus invites each and every one of us into his journey, no matter who we are or what we've done. Even though we are sinners, he calls us to become servants and leaders like him. Now let's dive into chapter two of the Gospel of Mark. We're glad you're here. I am so excited about this day. The first thing that I need you to do is to fasten your seatbelts and buckle up um, because we're going to have to move quickly. I had this feeling today as I was going through the content of Mark chapter 2 leaning into chapter 3 that there was an overwhelming amount of content. And and part of me just said, okay, Nick, you're going to have to cut some of the content. And the other part of me said, nope, you're just going to have to talk a lot faster um, because we're going to hang on and see what in the world the great God of this universe has to say to us, his students, his disciples this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to go ahead and get turned to the book of Mark. It's in the Gospels. We've got Matthew and then Mark, and we're going to be in chapter two today and then touch on just the first part of chapter three. As a reminder, this gospel um, was written in Rome, likely to Gentile believers, specifically Romans. And last week we looked at Mark chapter one, and it was where John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus to come, and then God announced his son at the time of his baptism, and then Jesus calls disciples, teaches in the courts and then, and then heals some people along the way. What we understand is that the book of Mark is really a, a translated gospel version of the account of what happened in the life of Peter. And, and so as he's transmitting to us, it really becomes like a memoir. And so it makes sense today for me to start in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, even though you don't have to turn there because it says this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. And this idea of being prepared to give an answer, some of your Bible translations actually say the word to make a defense. And that word defense is the Greek word apologia. And it's not making an apology, but it's where we get the word apologetics. If somebody coming in defending what this word says, the word apologetics is literally a reasoned argument or a writing in justification of something. So we're going to justify. This is the defense that we make on behalf of the gospel. We're giving a reason for what this says. It literally comes from the Latin word apologia, and that's a formal written defense. And so if you take the idea of making a defense, understanding who Peter is and what his call to us as believers was, you can understand that his gospel, the one that Mark transcribed for us, is literally that. It's a defense of who Jesus is. It's a reasoned argument of why he really is the Son of God. God and what it means. I want you to think about that as we approach this text because we're going to encounter a lot of stories through this and many of them are very familiar and there's some running themes through it. And what I want to understand is that I think that this sequence of stories in particular presents to us a really interesting, it's in your notes this morning, first up, it presents a really interesting apologetic. 
a really interesting defense. The Bible writers, they don't bury the conflicts. Maybe this is something about my character, but if I'm trying to convince you of something, I'm going to emphasize all the points that support my argument, and I'm going to bury and de-emphasize the points that don't support my argument, right? Not so much with the biblical writers. They didn't shy away from including facts in the story that would have made people not support who Jesus was, but even question and doubt and fear. And so undoubtedly, if I'm hiding all of the things that don't support my argument and emphasizing the things that do support my argument, years from now, when you look at the argument, people are going to be able to do, through careful study and investigation, they're going to be able to prove that I wasn't telling the truth. The Bible writers, they give us every single part of the conflict, even the parts that make it not so convincing. That's one of the things that proves. You say, oh, the Bible contradicts itself. Oh, the Bible presents all these conflicts. That's one of the things that actually proves its accuracy. The biblical writers were not trying to hide the truth. They were telling us the whole truth. It says at the end of the passage that we're going to read as we get to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, you don't have to go there just yet. It says, the Pharisees went out and they began to talk about. They began to figure out with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. We got these two groups of people that don't get along. The, the Herodians are a political party. They, they followed Herod. Herod the Great was who was in power when Jesus came, and then his son, Herod uh, Antipas. And so this group of people is literally following Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. They were in favor of Rome, a, a group of people who literally favored the idea of Rome, and they opposed the Pharisees on almost every single point. In fact, the only part of agreement that we can understand is that they wanted to kill Jesus together. The Pharisees came about during the intertestamental period. That's why you don't find out about the Pharisees in the Old Testament. In between the Old and the New Testaments, that's when the Pharisees came to power, and their whole goal was to protect the law and to help people follow it. They get such a bad rap for having conflicts with Jesus in the New Testament, but ultimately their goal was good in mind. They wanted to protect the people from disobeying the law, and so they built up all these additional rules and hedges that people couldn't pass in order to keep people holy. So we've got the Pharisees who are all about holiness and the Herodians who are all about their relationship with Rome. And these two groups of people who are at odds in everything are now conspiring to take Jesus out. And this is why. It's the conflicts that are presented in Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 3, and other parts of the Gospels. I'm going to read this in its entirety, and you can follow along in your Bibles or on the screens as the verses come. It says in Mark chapter 2, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to him. The setting the stage is that he's in a house, and it's probably the house of Simon Peter's mother-in-law, right? This is kind of a cool thing. He's literally in the house, and he's teaching people. The crowds have gathered around him, and it says in verse 3, Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And since they could not get to him, to Jesus, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. They couldn't get in the house through the door. They couldn't get in the house through the window. So they literally cut a hole in the roof and lower the man on the mat so that he's directly in front of Jesus. And then it says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the men, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins 
are forgiven. Now imagine what this guy was thinking then. Like, this is the guy that's going to heal me. We already know that in uh, uh, Mark chapter 1, he healed a whole lot of people. He healed Simon Peter's mother, the woman who lived in the house. We already know that from Mark chapter 1, he, he healed a man with leprosy. We already know from Mark chapter 1 that he, he drove out an impure spirit, and word has traveled about him so much so that when they found out he came back to Capernaum, his friends are like, we got to get you to Jesus, and there is nothing, not a crowded room, and not standing room only that's going to stop us from doing it. They lowered him on the roof, and it says when Jesus saw their faith, he said, sons, your sins. He wanted to hear the words, hey, you can walk now, but instead he heard your sins are forgiven. It says, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. The teachers of the law, some of your Bible translations are going to say scribes or Pharisees. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and he walked out in full view of all of them. The entire crowd that was still there today saw the man who was on the mat because he could not walk, get up and pick it up and walk out of the room. He got in there via the roof. He walked out on two legs. And the people said, we've never seen anything like this. The story continues. It says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. He's going into Capernaum, and then he's going out of the city and standing by the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd came to him and began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. This is Matthew, Matthew's gospel. And it says this, follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi, or Matthew, got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. They asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In the first story, Jesus heard their hearts, and he responded. Hey, what's easier to say, hey, your sins are forgiven, or to, hey, rise and get up and walk? And in this one, he literally heard their question. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. But the sick, the crippled, the invalid. And you see these themes running through this idea of forgiveness because the worst kind of sinner that any of these people could have ever imagined wasn't the man on the mat, although he was classified as a sinner too, but the worst kind of sinner that any of them could have imagined was the tax collector in the booth. And now he's gathered up all of his friends, anybody that would be willing to be seen with him, and they're all of a sudden eating together. And to eat with someone in this day and in this age was to affirm and accept and associate with them in a relationship. And so these guys are accusing Jesus of being in relationship with dirty, unclean sinners. And not only dirty, unclean sinners, but the worst of the worst type of sinners. And again, he's offering forgiveness. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees in verse 18 were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus answered them, how can? How can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Jesus is prophesying for them about the fact that he is going to die and be taken away. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst from the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. 
You've got a picture of fasting, what it means to be observant of the religious law. And Jesus is saying, I'm come to bring you something that's new, that's different. Later on, he would come and say, this is my blood. It's the new covenant. Then it says one Sabbath, the Shabbat, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain on the Sabbath. They're literally picking grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, the bread that was in the temple, the bread that was on the table, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he gave some to his companions, soldiers, guys who were out there taking care of the military. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And into chapter 3 it says, another time, Jesus went into the synagogue. Mark moves fast. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? It's like a song from the fray, but they remained silent. It's common in Middle Eastern language to, to use extremes and opposing opposites. Good, evil, save a life, kill a life. He looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. So then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, kind of their enemy, how they together might kill Jesus. When I, when I look at these, the selection of stories and I see the running themes in it, I can, I can literally look at one passage at a time and say to myself, man, I really want to be like those four friends. I, I really want to be like those guys whose faith was so strong in Jesus that they're willing to do anything that it takes to bring someone in need to Jesus. And I want us to be like that church. I want us to be like the four friends who are willing to do whatever it takes to bring someone who is in need to Jesus. And maybe I just want to recognize all the points in my life where I'm like the dude on the mat. And I recognize that somebody brought me to Jesus. You, you are the fellow on the mat. Somebody has brought you to Jesus, and you've experienced life and forgiveness and transformation in and only through him. But how often in the story, I'm not the four friends bringing their friend to Jesus, and I'm not the mat guy who's being brought to Jesus. I'm actually the Pharisees outside the room who are watching to see and to criticize I want to land on the story of Levi or, or Matthew. And as, as treacherous as he was in the New Testament, I want to know that, that my sins make me that treacherous, that I'm literally that much of a derelict in the kingdom of God. I really want to understand this is how sinful I am. And Christ chooses to come into my life and to be in a relationship with me and to invite me to his table. And then all my friends and relatives around me, he wants to bring us in so that we can be with him. So much so that we're not going to fast while Christ is with us and suffer. We're going to literally celebrate the fact that we have found Jesus and mercy. I want to honor the Sabbath day, and I want to keep it holy, and I want to be a person of religious conviction who, who follows those convictions out, not like the hypocrites. And yet, I want to understand the heart of the matter, 
there are so many rules, particularly related to Sabbath and what it meant to keep that Sabbath day holy. And some of them were just bananas, like you can only take a certain number of steps. And so if a woman and her daughter were having to go to the well to gather water for the day, typically they would gather it the day before, but if they needed more water for the day, one of them would walk this many steps, and then the other one would walk that many steps, and then the other one would walk that many steps, because if you walked too many steps, according to your pedometer, you would have sinned on the Sabbath. You could only do a few. There was actually a rule that you couldn't tie a rope on the Sabbath. You couldn't tie a knot. You couldn't tie a knot on the Sabbath. So how are you going to lower the bucket into the well to get the water out to begin with? Like, what if you couldn't, your arm wasn't long enough to reach? Like, how are you going to, how are you going to get, well, a woman, a man couldn't do it, but a woman could tie her girdle to the bucket and lower it down. And so then my mind started racing in this moment. I'm like, well, what would they do? Like, you can tie your girdle? So a woman's literally hanging over the top of the well with her girdle tied to the rope trying to bring up some water? Like, I don't even know what that would look like. And then what if the knot was so tight in her girdle that she couldn't get it undone? Could she call her husband and say, hey, can you undo this knot for me? It's like opening up a jar of pickles. And he's like, nope, I can't touch the knot. I can't tie a knot on the Sabbath. I can't undo it. You're just going to have to sit there like that until sundown, and then I'll come help you untie that. Like, what were the rules must have been? You can put on all sorts of hats in this moment. You can put on the hat of chronological snobbery, where, where we in our day and our generation look back on people in the past, and we just go, oh my goodness, how ridiculous is that? Because it, it does sound kind of ridiculous. Or you can put on the hat of curiosity and just try to figure out, like, how in the world do they even do that? When we were getting ready to move to Tennessee, we came with Susan and our only child at the time, Lily Kate, was about eight months old for a job interview, and we were staying in a hotel in Cool Springs, and one of our dear friends from North Carolina happened to be traveling through Nashville at the exact same time that we were here, and so we invited her over to the hotel. She hadn't met our baby yet, and so it was a really sweet time, and Lily Kate was just crying. She was so fussy and just not happy at all, and so the lady who had been a mother for a really long time, she was saying, oh, well, you know, maybe she's, maybe she's tired, or maybe she's dirty and needs to be changed, and she had had a nap earlier that day, and she definitely didn't need to be changed in the moment, and Debbie finally said, well, well, maybe she's just hungry, and Susan said, oh, no, I mean, we fed her an hour and a half ago, and she's got to wait two hours, and Debbie looked at us and said, what did you do, read a book or something? That baby's hungry. Like, sometimes we can get so bogged down with the rules, so bogged down with the schedules that we miss the heart of what we're trying to accomplish. Healthy kid. It's better to look at it with a position of Christ-likeness and to realize that in all these rules and all these specificities, it's ultimately a people that are trapped, a people that are in bondage, a people that are literally doing their best in this system of rules and all the wildly imaginative subsets of rules was, was all so that they could honor God because nobody had told them yet that there was grace. And that's why Jesus came. You can zero in on one specific story in this narrative and, and understand all of the facts that go along with it. But what I want to say today is that there's more to the story than just the presentation of the facts. Oh, Jesus was in Capernaum, or Jesus went to the lake, or Jesus was surrounded by a crowd, or the friends opened up the hole in the roof, or Jesus went to Levi's house. Like, there's more to the story than just the presentation of the facts. There's a principle here, even in the pattern of the stories, that can grow our faith. Verse 10, Jesus says, you know, which is easier to say? that the man's sins are forgiven or that he should rise and get up walk. But he did what he did. He said, I want you to know 
that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That, that, that word I want you to know is, is a Greek word that means belonging to one's house, household. Jesus is saying the reason I'm saying the things that I say, the reason that I'm doing the things that I do, and the reason why Mark presents them to us in this way is because he wants us to belong. And I think everybody in here could probably think of a moment in your life where you felt like you didn't belong. Everybody in here could probably think of of a moment in your life when you felt like a complete and total outsider and you looked at the people on the inside and wondered how in the world you were going to make that transition and you felt like you had nowhere to go and no one to trust, like you didn't belong, you didn't connect, you didn't feel valued. Guess who didn't belong? In the New Testament, people with disabilities, like the man on the mat or the man with the withered hand, they didn't belong. Guess who didn't belong in this New Testament context? The tax collectors and the sinners. They, they did not belong. Guess who did not belong in this people who did not observe the right rules and follow the right commands? This is who didn't belong. There's, there's a, a running theme in these stories of people who do not belong. And Jesus says at the beginning, I want you to know. I want you to belong. I want you to know what it means to be mine. There's an actual pattern in these stories. And some of you have heard of Christopher Nolan movies, and you've seen Batman, and you've seen Inception, and you've maybe even seen the movie Tenet. There's actually a a pattern of words that repeat themselves and words that are palindromes. They're the same forward as they are backward, like the word wow. Same forward and backward. You can't misspell it. Mom, palindrome, you can't, it's same forward as it is backwards. You can't misspell it. Well, there's a pattern of going in and moving out of these passages that's the exact same thing. Look what Jesus did, and look how it's presented. The first is he healed a man with a disability, right? He, he, he healed a man with a disability. Well, the next, he goes and eats with tax collectors and sinners, right? So we've got a healing story, and then we've got an eating story. I don't know about y'all, but after I'm healed, the first thing I want to do is eat, right? Because they make you fast from like midnight till the next day, and sometimes it takes a long time. So literally, after you come out of some sort of procedure, you the first thing, like I get it, like healing and then eating, that makes sense. Well, the next one is a story about fasting, which is the opposite of eating. Well, then what happens next? They go and pick some grains, it's, again, a story about eating, but, but this time it's on the Sabbath. And then the final story that's depicted for us in this series of conflicts, what is it? Healing another person with a disability. You've got a healing story, then an eating story, then a fasting story, followed by an eating story, and then another healing story. It's literally getting into the concept the same way that you get out. And do you know who would have understood this literary style? The Romans. The the people who were on the outside. And yet Jesus was inviting them to come to the inside, to know him and to belong with him. There's a lot of themes in these passages of scripture, but one of the running themes that's literally in every single one of these stories is the religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees. These people were a constant foil for Jesus and they provide a frequent warning for us. Here it is, Jesus said, hey, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What these guys do, read a book or something? They were so committed to the rules, they were so committed to the schedules that they missed the heart of the matter. The people were hungry, and they needed somebody. John Piper says that legalism, it's the conviction that law-keeping 
is the ground for our acceptance with God. And that was the essence of what it meant to be a New Testament Pharisee. That keeping the rules, keeping the laws, keeping the schedules somehow earned you your connection to God. It was a failure to be amazed at grace. They didn't know that there was forgiveness. They didn't know that there was grace. And over and over through this passage, you get a picture of all authority belonging to Jesus. All authority belongs to Jesus in that he was able to forgive sins in the first story. All authority belongs to Jesus in that he is Lord of the Sabbath in the fourth story. You know that the word Lord means owner of? It means owner of. Jesus says, I want you to know. I want you to belong. He wants to own us. He wants us to belong to him. And this is a juxtaposition that matters so much in Scripture. It's that Jesus had the authority that the Pharisees did not. And you notice that throughout all of the Gospels. We noticed it last week in in chapter 1 of Mark where the people were so uh, amazed at Jesus' teaching. Why? Because he taught them as one who had authority. And then the Bible says not as the teachers of the law. It's at the conclusion in Matthew of the Sermon on the Mount, the longest discourse. Matthew chapter 5 through 7, at the very tail end of it, it says that the people were astonished or amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught them as a person who had authority. What? Not as their teachers of the law. So, Jesus did all of these miracles. Jesus taught all of these lessons. Mark ascribe to us all of these moments. Why? So that we would know that Jesus had the authority that any of the earthly powers do not. And when you and I are in these stories, man, we want to be like the people who brought their friend to Jesus. We're even okay being the guy on the mat. We want to be the sinners that, that Levi invites over so that we can get close to a relationship with Jesus. We want to be the disciples that are right there with him, plucking grain and eating it together. We want to be the disciples that are literally as close as we can possibly get to the bridegroom himself. We want to be the man with the withered hand who stretched it out and Jesus made it whole, completely restored. We, we want to be those characters in the story, but more often than not, we're the Pharisees, the people who want our own authority the people who are threatened by the authority of Jesus and his word and his truth in our life. There are a lot of themes that run through these stories. And if you literally sit there and read them over and over and over again, you'll start to see language, plot, and character patterns throughout all of these. Language, did you know that the first story Jesus was, he heard their hearts They were complaining, who is this man that he says that he's forgiving sins? That's blasphemous. I don't know if they said it under their breath or if they just thought it in their heads, but the Bible says that Jesus heard their hearts. And in the last story, Jesus was really angry at their stubborn hearts. You've got a picture of heart at the beginning and heart at the end. You've got the stories about eating in in chapter 2, verse 16, and the stories about eating in chapter 2, verses 26. Incidentally, In the story with Levi, it says they're reclining around the tables, eating with him. There are many who believed and they followed him. And then it says, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? He's literally eating. If you were sitting at the table with a whole bunch of people, guess what one of the things that they would have had? They would have had wine, right? There's the idea of referencing wine and bread. There's language in here. The idea of is it lawful or is it unlawful? There's a plot 
there's healing stories, there's eating stories, there's fasting stories, there's more eating stories, there's more healing stories, and there's a running theme of Sabbath through them. And then there's characters. Jesus is in every single one of these stories. His disciples or followers in every single one of these stories. There's a person in need in many of these stories. There's the idea of sinners in these stories. And present in every single one are the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. If you look up the word authority in Scripture, it's the word exousia. And the root of that word is existi, and it means lawful. It means lawful, and and that's the phrase that was used. Is it lawful or is it unlawful? I was asking myself this question related to these stories this week. Who am I in connection to these stories? And who can I be in light of Christ? Oh, because I like the idea of being the faithful friends. I'm okay being the guy on the mat, but more often I'm the Pharisee with the wicked heart. I love the idea of being Matthew, somebody that Jesus called I even like the idea of of, of being the crowd of random people that he invited over, but more likely I'm the Pharisee that's judging others. I like the idea of being Jesus and his disciples. I I even like the guy of being John and his followers. I'm okay being the fellow with the withered hand, but more often not, I'm the Pharisee who's keeping score. The problem with all the parts that I would like to play in these stories is that more often I'm typecast into the role of the fellow who is judging others. So who do you want to be? Those who cling to their own stubborn ideals? Their own stubborn patterns? Jesus said in Mark 3, 5, looked around them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts? Or or those people who welcome complete and total change? The crippled man who could walk the sinner who was invited to the table, the the broken hand that was somehow completely restored. You know, the root word for the word restored in this passage of Scripture literally means to appoint or put in charge of, to own something, to belong to something. Every single one of these conflicts whether you zero in on one of them and take a truth that's specifically meant for you today or you look at the whole package and the system and the way that it's presented, every single one of these moments is an authority issue. What kind of authority does Jesus have in our lives? And that's where the conflict comes in. Who are you in the story? The person who is always at conflict and always at odds with what this word says and what it means about Jesus? Or are you okay with his authority? and what it means to submit to it and to celebrate it. You know what happens when when you're the person who celebrates the authority of Jesus in your life? There's certainly healing, and there's definitely celebration, eating and fellowshipping with Jesus, and probably more healing on the way. Ultimately, it's a story about belonging to the gospel. Right in the middle of your page, right across from that pattern, It's what Jesus' whole goal for us is, that we would somehow know who Jesus is, acknowledge who we were, outsiders, and welcome who we can become, the insiders, the people who belong, the people who know that it's based on grace, 
the people who are willing to lay down all of our rules and lay down all of our ideas and lay down all of our stubbornness and our judgment and our wickedness and embrace the fact that, that, that God came for us, that he sent Jesus for us. And it's about his authority in our life to do his will in our lives that will ultimately remind us that he came to save us. These stories can be taken and, and looked at individually, and we can celebrate the truth that's found. When you look at them collectively, you see a pattern, and you see an apologetic that proves who Jesus is and why he came. It's to have all authority in our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the chance to be in this place. Thank you for the chance to look at your word and to get excited about what it says and ultimately what it means. Our hope and our prayer today, God, is that you would continue to convict us and expose to us the true reality of who you are and why you came, and that you would remind us every single day what it is like to be a person who approaches you in humility to accept the authority that you have in our lives. Would you do that work in us, God? Would you remind us even now to be a people who submit, to, to be a people who believe, to, to be a people who surrender. We don't want to be at odds with you, Jesus. We don't want our ideas to contradict you, Jesus. We don't want to stand in judgment of others, Jesus. But we want to submit to you in the grace that you afford us, Jesus. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray today. To your glory that we celebrate the gift that we've been given. Amen. Thank you for checking out our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this sermon, make sure to share it with loved ones and subscribe so you can tune in each time we release a new sermon. Don't forget to check out our other awesome content, like the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, go ahead and download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We'll see you next time.